Welcome to The Bone Beat, conversations on health policy issues affecting musculoskeletal care and supporting advocacy efforts to advance access and quality. Brought to you by the American Association of Orthopedic Surgeons. Here's your host, Kristen Coltis. Today, we are covering the regulatory response to COVID-19, specifically CMS's path forward. And my co-host for this episode is Shriyasi Deb, who is new to the show and leads AAOS's regulatory advocacy as the Senior Director of Health Policy. Welcome to the show, Shriyasi. Thank you, Kristen. And we have the privilege today of hearing directly from Dr. Marion Couch, who is the Senior Medical Advisor in the Office of the Administrator at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. In this role, she reports directly to the administrator and works on policy creation, quality, and promoting transformation with value-based care. I should also note for our listeners that Dr. Couch is a head and neck surgeon with advanced training as a microvascular surgeon. Thank you, Dr. Couch, for joining the show today on this very important topic. We know that it is an incredibly busy time for your agency, and we so appreciate you setting aside this time to talk to our fellow surgeons. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks. So I want to begin the episode with noting two very important dates in our members' recent memory. On March 19th, CMS announced that all elective surgeries, non-essential medical, surgical, and dental procedures be delayed during the 2019 novel coronavirus outbreak. Then, a month later, on April 19th, CMS issued recommendations to reopen healthcare systems in areas with low incidence of COVID-19. So, Dr. Couch, can you briefly walk us through the timing for these two turning points and talk about where we are now in terms of gradually resuming elective surgery? I sure can. Thank you. It was um, quite a remarkable time. Um, You're right. It was March 18th and 19th that we published our recommendations that we developed in close collaboration with many of the surgical leaders and professional medical societies and also across the agencies. But we asked the nation to postpone non-emergent surgeries, procedures, and dental procedures. And when we called prior to the announcement, all the professional societies, including large hospital societies and especially the surgical and medical societies, There were greater than 50 that we contacted, and we had unanimous support. And that's remarkable because they all knew what this meant to their members, and we knew what it meant to their members. But we did it in an effort to preserve PPE, personal protective equipment, beds, ICU resources, such as ventilators, and to limit exposure for both patients and then also uh, surgeons and physicians. It's now time to reopen. We at CMS and across the agency recognize that there's pent-up demand for healthcare, and we're beginning to become concerned about patients who've stayed at home and have chronic conditions or these planned procedures. No one has a surgery unless they need it, and therefore, these procedures need to happen. So, with the White House, we worked with their uh, guidelines for opening up America again, and that was announced on April 16th. And as regions with low incidence go through gating criteria based on low amount of symptoms in a population, low amount of cases, and hospitals that can treat all patients 
and have good testing capabilities. Regions or states can go into phase one, then two, then three. So using that framework, we publish guidelines that allow people to consider uh, in states and regions going into um, phase one resumption of uh, what we call um, planned procedures and also healthcare, such as care for chronic uh, conditions and also preventive care. Um, It's important to work with the states. We have a whole series of um, uh, almost a checklist of what you need to do, but it's commonsensical. In other words, you need to be able to respond to a surge. You need to have enough PPE and critical equipment, and you need to be able to have the ability to screen, test, and trace. Um, We only ask that when you do start to resume your planned procedures and surgeries, please base it on clinical needs. Prioritize those patients who really need that care first and make sure you have all aspects of care available. I know that surgeons will understand that what we do is an episode of care. It's an arc. We need to have all those components back in place. So this has been quite a heavy lift for some uh, areas, um, but we're slowly seeing patients safely resume uh, and gradually resume this care. The Academy supported CMS's recommendations both um, at the start when uh, CMS and others like the American College of Surgeons made the decision and recommendation for those surgeries to be postponed. And we are also supportive of uh, the second change in guidelines that you noted, Dr. Couch. But before we get any further into this topic, I just want to make one point that is becoming increasingly important for AAOS and our advocacy efforts. And that is the notion that elective means optional. I notice you use the term non-emergent surgeries at the outset here. And um, in a recent interview with Becker's Spine Review, actually, AAOS President Joseph Bosco explained that Elective surgery is traditionally defined as a surgery in which a delay causes no harm to the patient. Then he went on to explain that at some point, if an orthopedic procedure is delayed long enough, the patient will be harmed. And he used the examples of compartment releases for acute compartment syndrome, fractures, joint replacements. And and as you said, we are reaching a point where some centers have been closed for eight weeks. And if we wait too much longer, there will be a lot of patients living in pain. So I just, I I now want to kick it over to Shriasi because when CMS released that second set of recommendations, at the same time, uh, AOS's very own healthcare systems committee was working on a set of clinical considerations for navigating the pandemic. Shriasi, can you expand upon those guidelines that AOS put together and how they complement those from CMS? I would like to stop here and actually welcome Dr. Couch to our uh, podcast today. Thanks so much uh, for taking this time out for us, Dr. Couch. Um, And uh, to go back to your question, Kristen, yes, that's right. Um, We, uh, one of our four guiding principles at AOS uh, for advocacy is uh, patient safety. That's our first priority, followed by the safety for our surgical teams. And um, the third consideration uh, was adherence to federal, state, and local public health 
health guidance. Um, and then as Dr. Kulch mentioned, um, everything right now is very uh, local uh, in terms of decision-making to restart surgeries. So uh, physicians will have to decide depending on their local availability of uh, personal protective equipment, ICU beds, number of cases in their area, and what their regulators are telling them, their public health departments and so on. Um, our leadership did not want to be prescriptive. They still wanted to be a decision made by the individual surgeon. And um, they would like our members uh, to follow what the regulators say, what CMS, CDC, and the White House say. Um, as we learn more about the SARS-CoV-2 virus through peer-reviewed literature and also watch um, epidemiological data on this disease. Absolutely. And that is why it's so uh, critical that we have Dr. Couch here to shed light on CMS's perspective. I want to move into some of the ways in which CMS and other regulatory agencies have helped our uh, doctors during this time see patients and get through the pandemic. Uh, there are several areas, actually, that CMS and others have eased the burden on our doctors. And one of those ways is telehealth. I, I read in the CMS recommendations on reopening that it noted maximum use of telehealth modalities is strongly encouraged. Dr. Couch, can you expand on some of the ways that CMS has heeded these concerns for members and enabled our doctors to better care for patients during the pandemic? I sure can, and uh, I relish the opportunity. I think early on, uh, when we were called in to respond to the pandemic, uh, we realized that telehealth could be a game changer. It could be a way for people to continue to contact their patients in a way that was safe. And uh, telehealth traditionally for Medicare has been something that's only in rural areas for established patients where they have to leave their home and go to a site to initiate the visit. And uh, in the past two years, our administrator, uh, Seema Virmont, has been a very strong advocate of telehealth. And she was able to, with her team, have virtual check-ins and e-visits added to that. Uh, we then went way beyond that. And, and she's proud of saying this, what often takes years was done in a number of weeks. The agency worked around the clock, and I'll share this with your members because I think it'll be something they'll relate to. I felt as if I was a surgical intern again. So for the past 10 weeks, we've been ripping away regulations in an effort. And the only question we ask is, will it help? And then can we do it? And if the answer to both of those are yes, we've done it. So with the expansion of telehealth, we've done uh, that work with a number of different levers, but one of the main ones is something called an 1135 waiver. And basically, it has allowed Medicare to pay for visits in multiple settings, including the beneficiary's home. And uh, we've also provided flexibility so that the provider, the surgeon, doesn't have to collect a copay. And basically, because these visits are considered the same as in-person visits, they're paid the same. We've allowed that visit to happen for new and established patients. And there's a wide variety of folks that can uh, use it, such as physicians, nurse practitioners, uh, nurse, um, or excuse me, physician assistants, OT, and physical therapists as well. 
it doesn't really um, resonate for your um, uh, listeners, but we extended this so that you could have an emergency room visit. And it was anything we could do to make sure that we were limiting the exposure of the patients and the healthcare workers, healthcare staff to each other or uh, minimize the transmission of the virus. And we've even uh, recently been able to, with rulemaking, have the ability to supervise uh, via telehealth so that if you're a surgeon and you're supervising other healthcare workers or other physicians or residents, you can now do that during the uh, public health emergency via telehealth. So it has been a remarkable time. I do not think I will see a transformation of medicine like this again in my lifetime. It's a once in a hundred year um, occurrence, but I think we'll learn a lot from the Medicare uh, expansion of telehealth. And I'm actually quite excited about that. And one other um one other aspect of telehealth I know that is really important to Shriasi and her team's advocacy is that CMS approved audio only services retroactive to March 1st, 2020. So that's huge. Shriasi, was there anything else relating to telehealth specifically that you wanted to highlight for our members? Yes, um, and I agree with Dr. Couch that the regulations came um, so fast and in such volume that we've hardly ever seen um, such updates. And thanks to Dr. Couch and to Administrator Verma and your teams uh, for helping our members and their patients um, through this pandemic with these new regulations. Um, very early on, the Health and Human Services Office of Inspector General allowed a wide range range of platforms um, like Skype and FaceTime to provide telehealth services. And uh, that was very helpful for our members. And Dr. Couch mentioned that um, such services could also be initiated at patients' homes. Uh, that was especially helpful when surgeries had to be postponed uh, to guide uh, patients. That, that was helpful, our members said, as well as uh, the expansion to new groups of clinicians. Um, and then you mentioned that CMS um, increased payments for certain telephone evaluation and management services, um, 99441, to match payments for similar office outpatient visits, 99212, 99211, up to 99214. Um, this change will increase payments for these services from a range of about um, $14 to $41 to about $46 to $110 by CMS estimates. Um, and this is the increased payment that will go retroactive from Mar March 1st. And I know that our members appreciated um, that update as well. And two other areas where AOS has seen, has seen sweeping changes that have really made a difference to our pay, to our members is burden reduction and increased flexibilities for practice settings as part of CMS's Hospitals Without Walls. So Dr. Couch, can you expand on these other two areas, which are also really critical to our members being able to get through this, this difficult time period in COVID? Sure. So um, let me um, try to focus on things that will really resonate with the uh, uh, members of AAOS. And uh, I'll start with the quality reporting. If you're part of the quality reporting program and you 
are using the merit-based incentive payment system or our MIPS, um, it was understood that it might be very difficult to report during these challenging times. And also the quality metrics would be skewed because of the decrease in patients. So they, um, this is Dr. Michelle Schreiber, who is um, working here and the administrator was um, supportive of this, but what uh, CMS is using the extreme and uncontrollable circumstance policy so that if you're an, unable to submit quality program uh, uh, data to MIPS, you can ask for reweighting, and essentially that would result in a neutral MIPS payment adjustment for 2021. So I think that's one of uh, many things we've done to make things fair and help the physicians as much as we can. I'm not a um, lawyer, and I will just be uh, talking in broad strokes, but with stark law flexibilities, during the pandemic, the ability for health systems and hospitals to provide meals, comfort items such as fresh clothing, and provide on-site child care is now going to um, be able to be done without a stark law violation. And I think that'll be quite helpful. As people expanded out to use tents in other areas, um, the facilities could allow the surgeons to do that or the physicians without a stark law violation. Uh, one final example, they could provide telehealth equipment and supplies to the physicians, again, without a violation. So I think that's helpful. And finally, in conjunction with a, um, uh, a surgeon who had lived and uh, been a big part of the response to Hurricane Katrina, uh, I reached out and worked on a concept with my wonderful colleagues in uh, Medicare on this hospital without walls. And it was tricky, but these wonderful people at, at Medicare, uh, I, I'm just blown away by my colleagues, figured out a way so that if you, for instance, would like to use an ambulatory surgery center as an alternative care site, maybe that's your COVID negative site, the hospital could have a deal where that would be part of the hospital, the regulations would follow, and but that ambulatory surgery center, as an example, could bill as a hospital. And then in another way, we released something called certificate of, um, excuse me, conditions of participation. And by reducing these conditions of participation for the pandemic, ambulatory surgery centers a few states then allowed independent freestanding emergency departments to enroll as hospitals temporarily. And during that time, they could bill as hospitals, again, to offer sites to handle the surge and also give um, surgeons and other physicians more opportunities to have different sites to provide care for their patients. So again, historic things that had never been done before. And um, many of these things will roll back, of course, and they should. Um, but it, it's, again, part of a grand experiment. Well, as Shriasi noted, AOS is extremely appreciative of these relaxations and regulation that have resulted during COVID-19. And we are hopeful that some of these changes that you've mentioned uh, are here to stay. But I also know that CMS is about to enter a very busy rulemaking season, and it goes without saying, Dr. Couch, that you will have a lot on your mind to consider and to take into account. So tell us how you think that transition will go into this sort of new normal in a world where everything has seemingly changed. So 
It's a wonderful question, and it's an important question. And I can tell you, we take this very seriously at CMS. And I am very proud to work for the administrator because she is really uh, continues to be driven to get this right. Um, it's important, and I want your members to know that we understand that we turned on these switches to provide maximal flexibility, and we are cognizant of the effect of turning them off. Some of them, by, by law, we have to. Others, we will be able to consider how we might go forward, and our new normal might be a better normal. This might be the opportunity for us to do things that we could never do without a pandemic. So uh, a lot of people use the phrase, don't let a good crisis go to waste. And that's what we may be experiencing. So we are hard at work trying to figure out, okay, this was greatly appreciated. What would that look like outside of a pandemic, outside of a public health emergency? We have to figure out how to get there. And you mentioned rulemaking. We um, have a number of other ways. Again, conditions of participation is another mechanism. And we also have to then talk to our colleagues up on the Hill sometimes to get new legislation written. But we are already actively working on those questions about what we should retain and what should revert back in addition to our regular workload. Uh, so we're both exhausted but very excited about what this new normal might be. And uh, again, I remain um, very hopeful we don't let this crisis go to waste. And I'm very hopeful that we actually make healthcare a lot better because of what just happened to us. Right. And I love too that in your answer, you mentioned the Hill, which is important because while in this episode, we're focused on the regulatory response to COVID, uh, the AAOS advocacy team approaches shaping healthcare with a three-pronged strategy, political, legislative, and regulatory. And Shriasi, I want to go back to you. From your perspective, how, if at all, have any of the things Dr. Couch has mentioned and we've experienced during COVID changed AAOS's priorities on the regulatory side? This is a very interesting question. And um, I would say that our priorities have uh, largely remained very much in line with our vision of enabling our members to be trusted leaders in advancing musculoskeletal care and uh, to be staying with our strategic plan. What we are now focused on is filling the gaps between member needs and resources that we already have. As we were uh, following the guidelines from HHS and CMS, we were also actually responding to um, a proposed rule that was published by CMMI, the Innovation Center at CMS in um, uh, end of February on the Comprehensive Care for Joint Replacement CJR model, which is a very important model for a number of our members and their hospitals. Um, and we had already started working on that when the pandemic broke. Um, so we are also looking forward to the rulemaking season this summer from CMS, 
Uh, we are already going through the impatient rule uh, that was just published. Um, we continue to emphasize, as I mentioned, patient safety, surgical team safety. Um, we are also trying to help our members stay well informed on new practice management tools, whether those are through uh, guidances from CMS, the interim final rules, or proposed rules that will happen all through this year. Um, and finally, I would be remiss if I did not mention that our advocacy around getting loans and grants for our members' practices and uh, preventing further uh, cuts to um, surgical staff uh, is uh, it's actually a major priority for us as well. I'm glad you mentioned the comprehensive joint replacement model, Shriasi, because while we have Dr. Couch here today and, and have her uh, to shed perspective on these programs, I wanted to ask how the changes brought about by the temporary reduction in elective cases, as well as related changes in allowed settings of care, affect programs like CJR. Thanks, Kristen. It, they certainly will have an effect, and the answer is we won't know. This is unprecedented. What I can tell you is that value-based care at the Innovation Center and all through CMS is still a priority, and we are working very hard to understand the effect it will have, and at every step, the goal is to make sure people will be okay. They will be held as close to harmless as we can make it. And, and it's actually really nuanced, sophisticated thinking that they're doing. They have to make sure that if someone is doing really well, they're not adversely affected if we just um, wave up and downside risk, for instance. We want to make sure that we're being as fair as we can to everybody. So the thought process that goes into this is, um, is uh, intense and um, it, it's deep thinking. And I just want to reassure your members that uh, the Innovation Center, I follow what they do, and uh, I'm very impressed by the way they're approaching this. So the answer is we, don't, we won't know the effect of the diminished uh, elective cases. It'll certainly affect the quality metrics as well. So there's a whole host of ramifications of this that we're trying to think through. And um, I think you'll be hearing soon, uh, but um, it, it's great that we have an energetic new leader, Brad Smith, along with some very uh, seasoned veterans in, at uh, the leadership helm at uh, CMMI, the Innovation Center, and they are working very hard to make sure that uh, uh, these types of questions are answered. And one other uh, one other program I know Shriasi and I wanted to ask you about is um, the chronic condition-based models. Shriasi, I, this is a particular research interest of yours, and I wanted to give you the chance to ask Dr. Couch herself about her thoughts on those models post-pandemic as well. Yes. Uh, so for our listeners, I first met Dr. Couch when she called last year, said you can call me Marion, which is a rarity with credentials such as hers, and invited mm -hmm. us to a number of listening sessions on longitudinal surgi surgical care models that CMMI had started thinking about. Um, some of our members are already participating in similar kinds of models. Um, uh, the Dell Medical School comes to my mind, um, and some of our surgeon leaders 
leaders there are very involved in that. Um, so it was the beginning of a great partnership. And Dr. Couch was all, had also presented on Dr. Bosco's invitation to the AOS board last winter. Um, so, uh, Dr. Couch, we are deeply appreciative of you and your thought leadership. What would you like to share with us on the agency's thoughts on furthering value-based care and adequate population-based risk adjustment? I think both of those issues um, uh, were highlighted during this pandemic as well. They, they were, Shirasi, and uh, it's important that we think about how to avoid um, episodes like this going forward and keep people whole. Um, the risk adjustment is something people are really concerned about and uh, continue to talk about, especially during these trying times. Um, there's different ways of accounting for risk, but the overall picture is that, you know, maybe fee-for-service didn't serve us very well. I never, as a surgeon, thought that my services would not be in great demand, and yet during times like this, we found that we were sidelined to a certain extent. I know there were some folks, such as your president, who actually was in the ICU reading EKGs, and uh, I, you know, just remarkable uh, call to service by some, but it, it was a trying, is a trying time for many surgeons. So maybe the value-based care world will offer more infrastructure, a per member per month uh, uh, infrastructure will help a um, uh, being part of, for instance, a next-gen ACO or direct contracting. If you're part of that group, they'll be able to sustain you as you have ups and downs because, of course, when utilization went down, these other value-based care models did well. So my hope is that as we go forward, we can figure out how to increase the Learning Action Network's goal and accelerate value-based care going forward. We have paused the longitudinal surgical model planning just for a moment because we have been so fully focused on this pandemic, but we'll soon go back and start embracing that and, and working on that going forward. And uh, it'll be important that we have good models for the surgeons. And so the new uh, director has heard that. And um, uh, I, as I say some days when I'm really working hard, I, I look forward to my old problems, not my new problems. <laughs> so getting the uh, longitudinal uh, chronic conditions that often end in surgery bundle programs going again will be very exciting for all of us. And that's that's about to happen. We're, we're again, we're pivoting back at CMS towards uh, really being able to have our, our focus and manpower on these other issues. So it's exciting. I think we view it as a chance to enhance value-based care going forward. And uh, I can tell you, I personally am very, very passionate about that. Well, Dr. Couch, we appreciate you coming on the show and taking this time to speak directly to our orthopedic surgeons via this new advocacy podcast. And it's funny, before the interview, Shriasi and I were, were saying how critical it is for the Academy to have these open lines of communication between our advocacy team in Washington, agencies like CMS, and our orthopedic surgeon members. So if they take nothing else away from this episode, we hope it's that you and your colleagues at CMS are listening to our concerns, whether they're COVID-related or on some of the more traditional issues we discussed. So we want to thank you for that. And I love, too, that you you uh, referred to this time period as a transformation of medicine. Thank you, Dr. Couch, for joining the show. Thank you, Shriasi, for your perspective as well. 
We look forward to covering more regulatory updates later this year, and hopefully we can bring Dr. Couch back for a future episode. I'd be happy to join you. Thank you. Thanks, Dr. Couch, and thanks, Kristen. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Bone Beat from the American Association of Orthopedic Surgeons. For more information on this topic and other AAOS efforts to shape the future of musculoskeletal care, please visit aaos.org advocacy.